I read a lot of short stories, and I still marvel at mm. uh, what people come up with. You would think that uh, everything has been said yes. and done, uh, all that over a short length. There is a limit to what you can do. No, that's not the case. Every, I, it's hard to say what would have changed without giving spoilers, but it, I think her life would be different and she would have been happy. But if I took the uh, ferry uh, over to France and drove off and took the first main road, then a minor road, and found myself in some steepy little village, suddenly my imagination began to race. Yes, I am a reader and very proud of it. Welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Eleanor Lappin, and our guests today are best-selling novelists Sebastian Folks and Claire Fuller. Their new novels are full of surprising echoes of the past in very different ways. And I'll also be talking to two of my fellow judges of the Love Reading Very Short Story Award about our passion for stories. Enjoy. My name is Sebastian Folks, and I'm the author of 14 novels and uh, four books of non-fiction. My most recent novel is called Paris Echo. And I'm going to read uh, the beginning of the novel. Why not? The reader won't know this, but I can tell you that the narrator is a 19-year-old boy called Tariq, who lives in Tangier in Morocco. I was taking a pee in the bathroom when I caught sight of myself in the mirror. My face looked so beautiful that I turned to look more closely, spraying the tiles around the toilet in my hurry. I shook my zib and put it back inside my boxer so I could study my face. It was like someone had drawn a faint shadow beneath the cheekbones, then put a touch of mascara on my lashes. The eyes had a depth I'd never seen before. I put my head to one side and smiled, then furrowed my brow as though I was being serious, but the eyes stayed the same twinkling with a kind of humour and experience. This was the face of someone old beyond my years. How could it be I'd never noticed before just how beautiful I was? Not regular handsome, maybe, like an old-time film star, and not indie blank like a modern one. More of a mix of soul and sexiness, with noble bones. I flipped the glass to magnifying and back to normal. I held a hand mirror up to turn the reflection on itself, so it sat right way on. I backed against the wall, then went fish-eye close. Made no difference. True, I'd smoked a little kiff, but only a little, which was all I liked, and I'd had a coat to keep my sugar level up, a tip from a boy in my year. I felt happy to think that this person was me. No harm could come to someone who looked like that. The ways of peace and righteousness were ours, not to mention soft-skinned girls and travel to distant places. We stared into one another's eyes for a few more minutes. Then he spoke. He said, You've got to get out, man. You've got to get out. I felt myself nodding in agreement, because I'd known this anyway for quite a while. There was nothing shocking in what he said. It was more of a relief. Go now. I will. Any day now.
Sebastian Folks. Welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. Lovely Thank to you. have you here. It's great to be here. Your new novel, Paris Echo, has the word Paris in it. Mm. And it's about the echoes in Paris. We'll talk about that later. But many of your books have echoes of Paris or France in them. Mm. And I was wondering, was it that year after Cambridge that you spent in Paris that made you focus on France? Or are there other reasons? I suppose uh, France to me has always been a sort of uh, a charmed through the back of the wardrobe adventure land. Um, one of the great things I've always thought about being English, and there are many, is that France is only 18 miles away. I mean, 18 miles is as far as you go to get the groceries sometimes. And there you are over the water in a, in a country that is physically, geographically very beautiful, um, wonderful culture, wine and a very rich and interesting history. But to me, what was enchanting about France, and Paris is very much not France, it's a completely different entity, was uh, the fact that it's so different uh, from Britain. Its idea of itself is different. Uh, its idea of history is different. Its idea of its own importance is different from our idea of our own importance. And it just has a completely different take on life, which can be uh, uplifting, baffling, frustrating, ridiculous. But here it is, just this enchanted land on our doorstep. So when I was first trying to write books, I suppose in the in my 20s, I didn't find the Britain in which I lived particularly inspiring, nor did I find the books published by my elders and betters particularly inspiring. But if I took the uh, ferry uh, over to France and drove off and took the first main road, then a minor road and found myself in some sleepy little village, suddenly my imagination began to race. So that was really what, why I've written so much about it, because it gave me excitement and it gave me material in a way that my own country didn't. What about the history? There's so much history and uh, history connected with the two world wars in your books about France. Um, was it What was it about that that found its way into your writing? I think I came to the history through the novels, really. When my second novel, The Girl at the Lyon d'Or, which came out in, I think, 1989, at the heart of it, it had a sort of moral dilemma about a relationship, but I felt that this moral dilemma would have had more weight in an earlier era. So I decided to set it in the 1930s. So I didn't want it to be in the, in the 20s. It was 20 seemed to be overworked. I didn't want it to be during the wartime, obviously. I, I didn't want to go there. So then I started reading up a lot about French life in the 30s. And you don't go very far in that before you come across the fact that it's living in the shadow of what happened in 1418, when more than 5 million French men were killed or wounded. Uh, my character in that book, Anne, is about 21, 20, 21, I think, when the story starts. So she must have been born during that war. So I began to look into the First World War. And then, you know, things went on from there. But really, it was the it was the necessities of the story and of my wanting to give it sort of moral weight, which meant that I had initially rather reluctantly to begin my historical researches. In this novel, there are, I would say, three main characters. Hannah, an American. Tarek, a young Moroccan, um, almost teenager, late teens, 19 mm. years old. And the Metro. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Paris. No. Nope. Uh, the Metro. I think actually, it's the Metro. And I think there's a very interesting quote that you use at the beginning by 
Kafka, may I read it? The Metro furnishes the best opportunity for the foreigner to imagine that he has understood the essence of Paris. <laughs> yeah, I came across that uh, after I'd written the book. I can't quite remember how. I just Googling Metro, I think. Um, mm. I mean, the book Paris Echo is really a lot about how Paris displays itself um, through the names of its metro stations, all of which refer to famous explorers, scientists, discoverers, doctors, uh, generals, uh, statesmen. And the street names are all references to people and to history and to France's proud uh, history as a republic post-revolutionary. But at the same time, it's actually quite a sort of difficult city to get to know. And the people are quite reticent and not, not particularly easy, not particularly outgoing or welcoming. And so you have this paradox, which I first came across as a 17-year-old when I went there as a student, lived there for three months. And I was both uh, uh, charmed by the city uh, but also frustrated by it. And I've never felt the sort of, ooh, weak at the knees, isn't Paris gorgeous kind of feeling which most of my countrymen seem to have, and most Americans seem to have, oddly enough. Uh, I don't really like croissant. I don't like the Boulevard Saint-Germain, there's too many tourists. I was looking for something different. I actually, well, I first came to Paris when I was a teenager. Um, I had a pen pal and I visited her and I spent some time there. And the metro absolutely confused me. I used to get lost in it every single day. But it's very logical. It's quite easy to find your way around, isn't it? Yeah, but there are all these exits and it's very strange and it's overwhelming. Mm. And you have a passage where one of your characters says that women in particular have one type of character when they're Mm. passengers on the metro underground Mm. and then they come out and they're different people. So there is something going on there that is in fact extremely true um, in the way you describe it. But let's talk about your your characters, Hannah mm. and Tarek. They are both foreigners. They both arrived in Paris for different reasons, um, but they both have interesting personal connections with it. What are they? I wanted outsiders to visit the city. I, I couldn't write in the person of a Parisian, a lifelong Parisian, though uh, actually in the course of the book, we do get quotations from uh, Parisians at some length, women living there during the German occupation. But that wasn't the book I wanted to write, and I don't think I would be qualified to write it any more than a French person would be qualified to write, you know, about indigenous Londoners, really. So Tariq uh, comes to Paris running away from home, and his mother, uh, who's died when he was a child, his mother is half French, um, the result of a marriage between a French settler in Algeria and, and an Algerian. And Tariq's father is Moroccan. And he is dissatisfied at home. He's a sort of high school dropout, university student dropout, I suppose you'd say. But he's he's very guileless. He knows very little. He's read very little. He's he's quite typical of a generation which has been educated um, in the last you know twenty years, I suppose, since the advent of the internet and so on, when uh, the educational system has shifted its emphases and young people haven't read so many books and they don't capture so much knowledge in their heads because they can get it all off their phone anyway. This doesn't mean to say he's stupid. It doesn't mean to say that generation is stupid at all, but it's different. Uh, so obviously when he arrives in Paris, everything is trying to surprise to him. I mean, he comes to Charles de Gaulle uh, 
airport or Place Charles de Gaulle Etoile, and he's no idea who Charles de Gaulle is. Um, he doesn't know that uh, France was occupied by Germany in the Second World War. He doesn't know the dates of the Second World War. He doesn't really know anything. So, you know, his project is mastering a series of surprises, really, day by day. But he doesn't care. He's happy in his own little world of daydreams and thinking about girls and smoking drugs. And he gets a job working in a fast food restaurant in Saint-Denis, which is a part of the northern suburbs of the town, a rather an interesting but not particularly smart area. Hannah, by contrast, the American, is an academic. Um, she's been well-educated at university in the United States. She's a historian. After college, she goes and does some voluntary work. She's quite a do-gooder. She does voluntary work in Africa. Then she goes back to university. And when we find her age 31, she's a postdoctoral researcher. And she's come to Paris uh, to look into the lives of women in Paris under the German occupation. And she knows a lot. She knows a lot about the past, about history, uh, and she's obsessed by the lives of other people, but is quite negligent about her own life and is struggling to deal with the fallout of a love affair in Paris 10 years earlier when she was an undergrad. So Tariq represents the sort of un uninformed, uneducated, pinball-in-a-machine way of living, and Hannah, the much better informed better educated. And one of the questions the book is asking is, how much do you really need to know to live a worthwhile and valuable life? Well, she's very hungry for a real human connection. Her loneliness really defines her and has defined her for most of her life up to this point. Um, and the one connection that she had was a very painful love affair, which has left her extremely bruised and lost. And she doesn't know how to find her way back into an emotional life with another person. All of a sudden, at her doorstep in Paris, where she's come to do pure research and lose herself in her research, she finds two young people who are basically homeless, a young French woman and a friend she has just befriended, who turns out to be Tarek. Um, the young woman leaves, um, goes to England eventually, quite soon, but Tarek stays with Hannah. Mm. And this connection, now Tarek is looking for something that could bring him in some way close to his mother, who he seems to be looking for in every woman he, mm. he looks at. And for Hannah, though, what does he represent other than a connection to maybe the French language, which he's much better at than she is? I think she. I think initially Tarek represents a sort of project for her. I mean, she's she's the sort of person who would take in a homeless person. Mm. She's sort of on the left politically. She's sort of bien pensant. She's she would view it as her her duty to some extent. Yes, there's also the fact that he speaks French. There's also the fact that he is a bulwark against loneliness, and she'd rather have someone in the flat when she comes home in the evening, even if it's someone she frankly rather disapproves of. She disapproves of his attitude towards women, his large uh, sneakers left lying around and, um, and all that kind of thing. But it's better than being completely alone. And so through her letting him be her tenant, which initially seems a bit surprising, I did explain at some length really why this is. It's, mm. it's, a, it's a way of avoiding solitude. And history plays a huge role in their lives in slightly different ways. She is obsessed with history because she sees history everywhere in the personal lives of all of us, really. History is present in mm. how we live now, and she um, meditates on that very beautifully. 
for Tarek, there is no history, but there is his personal history. There's this loss of, of uh, his mother and not knowing his, his family history, really, not mm. knowing where exactly he came from on that side of his family, uh, troubles him. And he feels that it, ha it has left a gap mm. in his life. And this is what Paris is for him, is an opportunity to find, to, to, to fill that gap somehow. Do you think he succeeds? Did you let him? <laughs> um, well, I think he does. Um, I don't want to give too much away, obviously, sure. but he doesn't come thinking, I need to know more, uh, I need to sort of wise up. But through an entirely selfish, personal thing about missing his mother, and then be he becomes to start to wonder about his mother's parents and what they were doing in Paris in the late 50s, early 60s. Mm -hmm. And then through, he begins to understand a little bit more about Algeria. And he then, he meets a character called Victor Hugo, who is a, runs a, a puppet show on the Metro, who is a sort of source of more information for Tarek and takes him in hand a little. And Tarek discovers that the history of France and Algeria is a very, very troubled one. And although he himself is not Algerian, he works with Algerians and his yeah. two of his grandparents were. So he's kind of, um, he becomes drawn into this. And the two characters, Hannah and Tarek, essentially, they sort of cross over in the middle. Um, Hannah believes, she comes to see that her obsession with the past and mm -hmm. with strangers and with people who, whom she's never met is a great moral good thing and a good academic thing. But she is using it as a displacement in order not to examine her own personal failings, those of her emotional life in particular. And Tariq comes to see that he's, he's stumbled through his family history onto a need really to discover more culturally about where he's come from. And this will make him a happier person and a better person. And the book moves towards something it threatens to move towards something I've never had before, which is a happy ending. <laughs> but whether it actually stumbles along and gets there, I'm not going to tell you. No, but it's beautifully done. They help each other. There are these two strangers who stumble upon each other, really, but they help each other um, in, in lovely ways. And it's a fantastic read. I really enjoyed it. I um, was also wondering, this is a personal obsession, sorry. You mentioned a TV show that he watched in uh, Morocco, an American TV show no. called The Messenger. Mm. I couldn't find any trace of it on the internet. You described it in great detail. Did it really exist? No, it's invented. <laughs> Not that great well, detail. you should pitch it to Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Not that great detail. Um, but no, they, it, it's a thing that um, Tarek is able to bond uh, with his girlfriend in, in Morocco. His girlfriend, in a very chaste way, I should say, who comes from a rather richer family than his. And he's rather daunted by her when she first rolls up at college. But he in, entices her to watch some, they binge on this TV show. Mm -hmm. And it has a, there's a particular catchphrase that one of the um, characters use, which is freezing fireballs. Frozen fireballs. Oh, frozen fireballs. Count me in. <laughs> which you made that up. I made that up. Oh, it's come a, on. That, it's, you have to pitch this. To, it's you a know, set of teenage exclamation phrases. It's fantastic. It's, God, what's going on? What's yeah. going on? What? W <laughs> TF is what it means. And he uses it a lot. Yeah, well, there are many, many times in, in yeah. Paris, go to Saint-Denis. I mean, that is a real frozen fireballs moment because there you have the Basilique Saint-Denis, this big Roman Catholic cathedral where all the kings of France are buried. And out, outside, there is the market square where, which is like being in Algiers,
Tunisians or um, Fez or actually it's a sort of mixture of different nationalities, but it's um, there's lots of halal meat and coloured cloths and people with sad eyes and women in hijab and so on walking around looking cold and lonely. Not all, I'm exaggerating for effect here, but I mean the, the, the culture clash there is just could not be more, it's almost cartoonish really. Mm. Do you go to, do you have to go to Paris for your research or is everything in your head when you write? Oh, no, I went, I mean, I, I've been to Paris a lot over the years, but this is a book set, it's actually set in 2006, it's not quite up to date, but I really needed to go there and spend a lot of time there. I went there for two months initially and then for another month later on. And I just walked the streets constantly. I moved around. I had rooms in different parts of the city. And one of the things I said to myself at the beginning is I, d I don't want to have any street names in here that will be familiar to tourists. I want to take them to parts of the city that will unsettle them. Not because um, they're, they're all the sort of worst or, you know, grimy bits, so many of them are, but just because it will unsettle them because it's unfamiliar. And to me, that's one of the things that fiction is best at doing. I like, I hate when if... If a novelist writes of a character, she was the sort of woman who, I throw mm. the book to one side, mm. I want to be saying to people, you've never met a woman like this, you've never met a man like this, so he's not the kind of man who, forget it. That works fine in journalism, but it doesn't work in fiction. So I don't want them to be nodding, say, oh, I know that little cafe on the Boulevard Saint-Germain. They don't know any of these places, I promise you. I love What I love about your writing is that each character, even... Uh, not a character that actually appears in the book but is spoken about, has a proper history, proper story. They all fully developed, such as the characters whose audio tapes um, Hannah listens to, these women who lived, um, who had very interesting stories to tell about their lives under uh, German occupation. They all seem so real that when she finally meets one of them, it's an incredible surprise. I will not give anything away. Sebastian, folks, thank you very much for this conversation, for love reading. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. My personal top pick this month is a nonfiction title, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, by Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harari. His previous two books, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, and Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, dealt, as their titles easily suggest, with the past and the future. His very smart, direct, but never simplifying approach to big questions appealed to millions of readers worldwide. This book was partly born from Harari's interaction with his readers and zeroes in on the present, on the confusing, complicated, and often terrifying times we live in right now. That's what drew me to it. I wanted to hear his original take on what is happening now and how we can deal with it. I wanted to know, is there even a shred of sanity left in our dangerously crazy world? Harari doesn't disappoint, but he doesn't completely satisfy either. By asking question after provocative question about fake news, ecological disasters, artificial intelligence, terrorism, nuclear war, the era of Brexit and Trump, and constant change in every domain of our lives, he leaves us hungry for those answers. His genius is in identifying the questions we should be asking so that we can find a way forward ourselves. My favorite insight in 21 Lessons for the 21st Century is the simplicity of Harari's central thesis. 
that in everything human beings do, they need to believe in stories, religion, political dogma, personal narrative. And most, if not all of these stories, under close inspection, turn out to be fictions, some useful, some beautiful, but ultimately they are stories. Yet by contrast, he says that life is not a story. This is actually a deeply intriguing point. I can imagine book clubs having wonderfully heated discussions about the ideas in Yuval Noah Harari's very original narrative about our lives today, and perhaps coming up with even more questions than he originally suggested. 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari is published by Jonathan Cape. I'm Claire Fuller, the author of Bitter Orange, published by Fig Tree Penguin. In the very early morning, I was woken by someone flushing the toilet in my bathroom next door. There was the thumping noise of the handle being pumped several times before the cistern released its gush of water around the bowl, and as it refilled, the hollow clanking and rasping, like an old up-and-over garage door being opened. I waited for Carr or Peter to call out that the toilet downstairs was broken, although there must have been others nearer their rooms, and then I remembered Peter had told me that there were only two functioning bathrooms in the house, mine and theirs. I waited for a footstep, or the sound of the bathroom door opening, but when the flushing noises stopped there was nothing. A glitch in the plumbing, I told myself, but still I got up to see. The door to the room opposite was open, and the sky behind the avenue was peach, piled with cumulus clouds. The bathroom door was shut. Had I closed it after I brushed my teeth? I couldn't remember. I hesitated, and feeling foolish, knocked. There was no answer. No cough or shuffling of feet to let me know the person was at their ablutions. And suddenly it seemed wrong. The corridor the space around me, as though there was something so close behind that if I were to turn in an attempt to see it, the thing would move with me and never be caught. I held Mother's locket for a moment, the back warm where it had lain against my skin, and then I grasped the bathroom door handle and swung the door wide until it bumped the wall. The room, of course, was empty. The toilet lid closed in the way that Mother had taught me. Somewhere in the pipes under the floor, water was churning and slopping about like an upset stomach. I turned to go and saw the pillow in the bath. It was the spare pillow I sometimes used, the same pillow I had held across my lap while Kara told me her story the previous night. I hadn't noticed it had gone. It had been placed at the opposite end to the taps, and there was a slight indentation in the feathers, as though someone had slept there in the bath. It horrified me, its appearance, its incongruity, like a pile of human feces in the middle of a living room carpet. I picked up the pillow by a corner. A long grey hair adhered to the cotton, and I stripped off the case in such a way that I didn't have to touch the outside. I stuffed the case behind the toilet, and as I took the pillow back to my bedroom, 
the shadow at my back followed close behind. Claire Fuller, welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. You are the author of Bitter Orange, your brand new novel, but we have actually met a couple of summers ago at Edinburgh Festival, and you were talking about a different novel, Swimming Lessons, which was extremely impressive, and I enjoyed that conversation very much. And now you've just revealed to me that at that time you had already written a draft of this one. Is there a connection between the two? No, not really. I was just trying to do something completely different. I mm. always feel often when I've finished one book, I want something completely different, except that I suppose the time period is actually quite close to the time period in Swimming Lessons, which was set in the 70s, and um, and this is 69. So perhaps I didn't move that far away. And it's still quite a small cast of characters. But to me, they feel like completely different books. They are completely different. And yet there are, there are parallels or maybe um, sort of threads that I feel connect the two worlds of the two novels. And those are threads that obviously occupy you. And these are stories about what is true and what isn't. Mm. Death <laughs> of people in the family. How did that death happen? Is it real? Um, what happens after that death? Um, how do the living live with it, um, the survivors, so to speak? I found all of those trains of thought in your previous book as well. But in this one in particular, I have to say, I am completely, I'm still in, in it because I literally just finished reading the last pages before coming here. Sometimes I can do an interview without reading the last few pages. In this case, I could not. <laughs> I had to know what, what happens at the end. And, you know, your novel is called Bitter Orange. It could also have been called very sort of prosaically foreboding because every page, every word gives you a sense of what is to come, what mm. may come. And you, you really feel that the past completely predicts the future in a way that the best sort of thrillers do, mm -hmm. uh, psychological thrillers. Let's speak about your main character, Frances. Who is she? So Frances, in 1969, when we meet her in the house, she's nearly 40, she's 39. But she is telling this story from 20 years after that. So she is 59 when she's telling this story about that summer that changed her life. And what we learn about her history gradually as it goes along is that she has been living with her mother, caring for her mother who has been ill and has recently died. And she's almost been given her first job to come to this country house in Hampshire and survey the follies and the architecture in the garden for an American who's bought the house recently. What kind of house is it? It's a neoclassical house very grand or was once very grand and was it was requisitioned by the army in the second world war who messed it up basically trashed it wrote graffiti stripped things out of it left nissan huts in the grounds and and made a complete mess of it but it still i think bears some of its beauty certainly on the outside with its columns and you know high ceilings and there is still a library 
that exists. And the setting, of course. Yes. The lake. Yes. So it's in this English landscape that has also gone to seed that nobody's really been looking after and has overgrown. And there are all these follies in the garden, a mausoleum, an ice house, a model dairy. I've had great fun creating this place in my head. It feels like a world that no one has touched for hundreds of years, let alone 20 or 30. Yeah. Is this modeled on a house you've seen or a combination of houses you've seen? It is on on a house called The Grange, which is in Hampshire where I live. You can go around the outside and it is it looks very similar to Linton's. It has an orangery, although in real life the orangery has been converted into an opera house. Mm. But inside it still is more or less derelict with all the plaster falling off the walls and big netting under the ceilings to stop the plaster falling. Um, And I was lucky enough to contact, well, I contacted English Heritage and they agreed to give me a kind of a private tour around the inside. The caretaker took me around. And so I went up to the attics and down to the basement and more or less in every room. Did you hear any stories from the caretaker that made their way into your novel. I did. He told me lots, because it's so atmospheric, so he told me lots of kind of ghost stories, really. And there's one in particular that makes it into the novel that um, is about hearing footsteps in the basement. And he was such a down-to-earth man that I really believed him and it really (laughs) creeped me out, this place. When a down-to-earth man believes in ghosts, that's it. That's your evidence (laughs) (laughs) that they exist. So who is at this house. So Frances arrives from London. Her mother has recently died. She's looking for something new to occupy herself Mm. with. And she assumed that she would be alone there because her assignment is to write about the garden architecture um, around the house, more or less. And she arrives and finds two people in the house with her. Who are they? They are Cara and Peter, a couple. And Peter is there to survey the interior of the house for the Americans. So what's left of it, the fireplaces and the ceiling roses, and there really really isn't much left. And they are living there for the summer. And Frances should have had the grand rooms to stay in, but Cara and Peter take them, and so she ends up in the attic rooms. And they are very glamorous and fun-loving, And she takes a while to get to know them because she is very insular and she wants to be inside. She wants to make friends, but she's never known how, really. And as she gets to know them, she discovers in her bathroom floor a spy hole through their ceiling rows into their bathroom below. So what Frances sees is a happy couple in love, very much in love, very touchy-feely, very romantic, and she admires that. The man is older than the woman. The woman is in her 20s. Um, I'm not quite sure how old Peter is, but Frances herself is 39, so she's probably closer in age to him. And what I loved about your book is how it's written so completely in tune with her character, which is initially so shy, painfully shy. She literally does not know how other people make a conversation, how other people become friends with each other. How is that done because of the life she has led? And then as she gains confidence, the tone of the novel changes, even the rhythm changes. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about her shyness. Where did that come from? 
I think I was just imagining, once I decided what her life had been like before, I was imagining what that woman who came out of that kind of upbringing would be like. She's physically very awkward. Yes, she She is. She feels and is perhaps um, too overweight, too large a Mm. woman. She doesn't feel that she fits in. But what is most interesting is how she feels so very much on the outside of other people's lives. Yeah. So when she begins this occasional spying, which she still tries to control through the spy hole on the couple below, that's basically what she's done all her life, just watching how other people live. So what she sees is a couple that's exuberant, uh, particularly the woman. Um, But then later we find out how very, very complicated their story is and their relationship is. And I am intrigued by Kara's storytelling. When we meet Kara, she is sort of exploding in Italian. Mm-hmm. She seems to be, and, and uh, Frances thinks she is, Italian. In fact, she doesn't even really speak Italian yeah. or very little. And she tells so many stories. The book is in part a gradual sort of narrative that Kara tells Frances about yeah her life. And that narrative is fascinating and beautifully told, but it turns out to be fiction. Mm -hmm. So we have fiction within fiction. And that is very, very intriguing to read because even as we begin to guess that her stories don't add up, we don't know how much of their stories don't add up. And the most interesting fantasy is that she once had a child this child died, but the child had no father. Yep. This I need to discuss with you. <laughs> <laughs> where uh, did this idea come from? What does it represent? So I don't know where this idea came from, except that she is, Cara is actually Irish. She's almost kind of half Catholic, half Protestant. Yeah. She's completely muddled up with her religions um, and half nothing, really. Because she doesn't, I'm not sure she really believes. Um, And so it was quite intriguing that she should have a child with no father in a, you know, Virgin Mary way. Except, obviously, she didn't. (laughs) Obviously, she had sex with a man, but will not admit that she did or who this man was. And that's the interesting part, that people accept that about her. They say, okay, fine, so that's your story, let's go with that. But what does it actually say about her? I think it says that she likes to completely reinvent herself and that she likes to be the centre of attention. I think eventually people will get tired of her. Not readers, but, you know, if she was a character in real life, somebody wanting to be the centre of attention is quite tiring after a while, but that's what she does. So I think it was just another story. Each story has to be more outrageous than the last for Cara. And so this one kind of almost outdoes them all, I think. We can understand why Cara and Peter are fascinating to Francis, but why is, why is Francis fascinating for them? Because Cara needs an audience. And Peter has tired of being an audience, I think. He he thinks that she's ill with all these stories and the inventions and that she needs to see a psychiatrist or some kind of doctor. But Frances 
is all is new to all this and excited by it and intrigued and for the first time she feels that she has a friend i think she is perhaps mistaken because Kara is using her as an audience rather than really seeing her as a friend but but francis doesn't recognize that so this is really very much about loneliness um all these characters are very much alone in their mm. lives they don't really connect with each other or with many other people and they all have terribly tragic backstories and demons mm. in their lives and the way they deal with them each one in a different way is by inventing a story that they can actually live with mm -hmm. now this is completely common we all do this mm. i'm sure i'm sure this is how lives are lived mm -hmm. but interestingly also this is how fiction is written you talk about how it matters that a story is well told that that matters more than whether that story is actually mm -hmm. true and that is what writing good it's, fiction good convincing fiction is really all about yeah, isn't it absolutely you've got to convince the reader that this is really happening that they're there you've got to get them to kind of sink into the story it doesn't matter what the story is but it is about being convincing absolutely i also would like to talk to you about your writing style because it is so visual so visually rich and precise and i know your background originally before you came to writing you were an artist or, yeah yeah how do you find that your background in art helps or defines your writing it's, it's, i often find that a hard question to answer because mm. i only know the way that i write and the way that my mind works you know so and interestingly i when i was doing art and I still do a bit um, I was doing drawing and sculpture so not painting not something that I mean sculpture is visual but mine were very large pieces stone carving wood carving you know very mm. kind of textural and something about you know hands-on rather than just looking at something but I do agree that lots of people have said that when they read my books, you know, it's, it is very visual. It's textural. That's yes. exactly how I would describe your okay. prose. Very textural. And it's both textural and atmospheric, which is a unique quality, mm -hmm. I, I think. And were you thinking about writing when you were doing sculpture? No, never. no, never. No, my first degree was in sculpture when I was in my early 20s. And I was a reader, but never a writer, never occurred to me to write novels or short stories or anything. So I didn't start writing until I was 40, uh, 11 years ago, um, when I started writing short stories. And that... Just like that, all of a sudden? Uh, well, I came across a um, short story slam, so an event in my local library where you could sign up to write a short story and you had to read it out to an audience. Mm. And for various reasons, I was kind of looking for a challenge. And that was a big challenge because I hadn't written anything since, no creative writing since I'd left school. So that's what started it all off, really. And then I did a creative writing MA and my first novel came out of that. Um, so I'd never planned to be a writer at all. But now that you are a writer, you seem to be on a mega roll because it's one novel after another, each one very strong and powerful, unique and very uh, widely read and accepted. And you have uh, a fantastic readership. What are you planning for the future? Are you going to stay with those sort of going back in time somewhat <laughs> pieces or... 
Yeah, well, I never intended to write that kind of dual time frame, dual narrative. So, I mean, it happened with the first novel, Our Endless Number Days. And and then I thought, never again. It's so complicated. And then with swimming lessons, there mm. are three time periods yeah. and two voices. And I, why have I done that? Because I don't plan, it just... It just happens. Um, and so with Bitter Orange, the same thing happened. It, it seemed right to have Frances looking back at this time mm. so that she could comment on it or, or also withhold some information, I suppose. So structurally, it, it helped with that. But now I am saying never again. <laughs> so my plan is not to write dual narrative, dual time frame. I am going to write a linear chronological story. <laughs> I, I'm not going to hold you to that because whatever you write is going to be a lot of fun to read. We shouldn't forget to mention a wonderful character who could have completely changed the course of Francis's life, Victor. Yeah, Victor the vicar. I like that little joke that everyone in the book finds funny and so does the reader. Victor the vicar who doesn't want to be a clergyman. He wants mm -hmm. to be, he tried to be doctor, but he couldn't do that. He is not very comfortable in his skin as um, a man of faith. Mm -hmm. He has a lot of doubt, but he has fantastic human instincts. And he is in love with our heroine. With Frances, yes. If she had been open to that, just give me an idea what could yeah. have changed. Maybe everything. I feel so, yes, everything. I feel so sad for her because she wanted friends she wanted to be inside a circle of people mm. and she thinks that should be car and peter and it should have been victor she was looking the wrong way the whole time um and yeah i think everything would have been different she wouldn't be where she is in when she's narrating this story Every, I, it's hard to say what would have changed without giving spoilers but it, i think her life would be different and she would have been happy and yeah. he kept warning her. Yes. We know that. But then, of course, if she had gone down that route, we wouldn't have had this. <laughs> <laughs> Bitter Orange wouldn't exist. This narrative, which is goosebumps yeah. all the way and a really beautiful, atmospheric, tragic, sad, but just beautiful story. I would like to thank you for being our guest on the Love Reading Podcast. Thank, Thank you for having me. Thank you. Our very short story award deadline is quickly approaching. I sat down with two of our judges, Love Reading Review Editor Liz Robinson and author, editor and translator Maxim Jakubowski to talk about our love of short stories. The Love Reading Podcast will be a perfect place to showcase the power of the winning story. So we have launched the uh, Love Reading Very Short Story Award quite recently, and we now have a month to go until the deadline at the end of October. What would you like to see in the submissions? What would excite you the most? Basically good stories, mm. stories that uh, reach me both... Uh, in my brain and in my emotions. Uh, mm. It's as simple as that. Uh, I love the short story medium. Uh, I much prefer, from a personal point of view, writing short stories and mm. writing novels. Novels, I find agony. Mm. I've written 10 novels under my own name and 
11 novels under pen name and uh, everyone has been sheer agony because uh, it goes on and on and <laughs> it's so difficult to get things right or even to be happy I mean uh, every one of them I would be happy to rewrite uh, after publication because I feel they can be improved on well as mm. short stories I still do I still write a, probably about half a dozen short stories per year purely for the sheer pleasure of it and very often in fact between novels uh, the short stories I write are almost like a diving board into the next novel. And also, I, I just love reading short stories because mm. you can you can catch the voice of new authors uh, mm. in there. And uh, for nearly 20 years, I edited the best erotic stories of the year volume. Um, and uh, for 14, or was it 15 years, the best uh, British uh, crime uh, short stories of the year. So I read a lot of short stories and I just still marvel at mm. uh, what people come up with. You would think that uh, everything has been said yes. and done uh, or that over a short length there is a limit to what you can do. No, that's not the case if the author is good and that's what I'm hoping to come across mm. in the competition. Yes, ex exactly the same. Mm. And good writing is good writing. And for me, I, I tend to actually binge read when I start reading short mm. stories. I tend to completely immerse myself in it. Yes, I am a reader and very proud of it. But yes, it's it's the intensity, I think. You know, whether it's a page or 10 or 20 pages of real intense, emotional and I, I love it when something really hits you, hits you in the and you're just, oh, you know, that gasp of how on earth have they managed to get that much emotion or intensity, that flash of intensity within such a short space of time. I love it, adore it. Does it concern you at all that we've set the limit of a thousand words for our short story award? Firstly, no, because it means uh, uh, less to read. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, le le length is not a problem. I mean, whether it's a, a very short story, whether it's a five thousand short story or ten thousand word novella as mm -hmm. it would be called technically um, it's the content not the length mm -hmm. really that uh, absolutely i'm actually really about. excited by it because i think it's an extra challenge 600 to a thousand mm. words as an author i would be turned on by that i would yeah. find it really exciting no, it's a challenge to just go for it yeah um maxim you've written a lovely quote about why you love short stories and how you originally fell in love with short stories. Would you like to read it for us? Uh, I've always felt that the art of a short story was a goal I strive towards. And even after writing a few handful of novels, I still find that my greatest joy has been writing at shorter length. It's also so much more difficult, encompassing a whole world with its characters and emotions, and not a word should be wasted. My first encounter with a diamond-like perfection of a short story was reading Catherine Mansfield. And much later, discovering the obsessive noir world of Cornell Woolwich, whose short tales easily eclipse his better-known novels. The late Ed Gorman was also an affecting influence, as was J.G. Ballard. You can no longer make a living from writing short stories, but for me, it's the epitome of art. Mm. Well said. Lovely. Yes. Beautiful. Uh, Liz, is there a short story in your early reading life that has stayed with you? I don't think so. I think I probably came quite late to short stories, actually, if, if I'm being completely honest, from working for Love Reading mm. um, and reviewing collections. And I've reviewed Maxims and um, John Connolly and Stephen King. And I just 
a door where they where they take you. I've reviewed right across the genres as well. So you know, the crime, fantasy. Um, there's a lovely book called Rogues um, that's been edited by um, George R. R. Martin about rogues, and it's fabulous, absolutely fabulous. Um, well, we are open to all those genres exactly, in this competition. Exactly. So whether you're writing fantasy, science fiction, erotica, romance, romance yeah, um, or very literary fiction, go for it. Let us read your stories. You mentioned Catherine Mansfield in your quote, and I have to mm -hmm. say, in my early reading experience, there was a story by Catherine Mansfield that has stayed with me. Is there a story called The Party? There is the garden party. That's the one. That's the one. Which well, is a, a diamond in the rough. Absolutely. Although there's nothing rough about it, actually. Mm. <laughs> I remember the texture. I remember the smells. I remember the feeling. I remember the description of the... De I have forgotten the overall tale. And I don't even remember whether that is a very short story or mid-length. I don't know. But I remember, I mean, I have a visual memory as if I've been there. Mm -hmm. And that was a gem of a story. Do you remember when it was written? I think it was written in the 1920s. Exactly. It was written in the 1920s. I think I read it in the 1970s or 80s. And it has not left my mind. Mm -hmm. That's what I look for mm -hmm. when I read a short story. Something mm -hmm. completely un un unforgettable and something that pierces right through everything else that's on your mind and just stays there. Yeah. So hopefully those are the submissions, those are the types of submissions that we'll be lucky enough to read and choose from. Um, let us mention our additional judges. Priti Taneja, the novelist, whose uh, novel... We That Are Young, we've just discussed on a previous podcast, mm. and Alison Flood, who is a literary journalist, critic, and also works for Live Reading on an advisory basis. And unfortunately, we couldn't at this point have a conversation with all of our judges at the same time, but they will join us at a later point and we'll chat to them as well. So we have five judges between us, but there is a sixth judge. Who is this sixth judge, Liz? It's the Love Reading community, the members of Love Reading. And I think it's quite exciting because we see this award as being an all-inclusive award and our members are very much a part of the team. We do have a lot of bloggers and keen readers and reviewers who actually are part of our reader review panel as well. So we have some fairly knowledgeable people who are actually members of Love Reading, which is why it's important that they're included as well. And of course, anyone who wants to be a member of Love Reading um, can become a member of Love Absolutely. Reading and then vote for the story. So is it a little bit like the X Factor? You know, the judges choose, I don't know, the early selections and then the public votes. So we have a people's voice. We have a people's voice, but the actual overall winner is chosen by the judges. Mm -hmm. And then the people choose their favourite. Um, so in effect, there's almost two awards, although it actually could be the same one. That so, would be very interesting. It, it would be super interesting if they were the same ones, mm. but it would also be fascinating mm -hmm. if they weren't. Yes. Thank you very much, Maxim Jakubowski, Liz Robinson, and I'm Elena Lapin, the Love Reading Podcast. Please look out for all our announcements about the Very Short Story Award 2019. And we say 2019 because the winner will be announced in 2019. But our deadline is the end of October. Thank you.
Our conversations on this episode of the Love Reading Podcast echoed with stories from the past catching up with the present. In his recently published novel, Paris Echo, Sebastian Folks creates a unique connection between two strangers in Paris, each on a very different quest to discover, or perhaps ignore, their history. Claire Fuller, in her new novel Bitter Orange, weaves a thrilling mystery around the past life of a dying woman. And my pick, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari, helps us see our present as a live but not predetermined echo of our past. I would like to thank our guests, Sebastian Folks, Claire Fuller, Liz Robinson, and Maxim Jakubowski. This podcast was produced by Alex Raymond with original music composed by Alex Raymond. I'm Elena Lapin. Thank you for listening.